Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Nightlight. I just want to talk to you. But let's begin with Isaiah chapter 33, verses 5 and 6, where it says, and I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard, The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He's filled Zion with justice and righteousness, his, his kingdom. He will be the stability of your times. Did you get that? A lot of us need to write that in big letters and hang it on our wall so we can see it periodically. He will be the stability of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. You take that verse and put it up against uh, Haggai chapter 2, which is quoted again in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. I will shake everything that can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken may remain stable. Well, we've referred to that verse over the years many times. But I never assumed in the previous times when I referred to those verses that we were in that shaking. Uh, I've always known we would eventually come to a time when everything would shake. Uh, and I don't think we're in that time quite yet, but we're in the beginning of it. We're not in the end of the end of the age, but we are in the beginning of the end period of the age. Uh, all nations are being shaken, and the shaking will continue and will get more profound. So we remember uh, that he is the stability of your times when things are shaking. Uh, Proverbs, or excuse me, Psalm 11 says, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And Isaiah says that we are called in Isaiah chapter 58 and uh, also in Jeremiah, we are to rebuild the old waste places and reestablish the ancient dwellings. And we are to reestablish the, the broken foundations. So with all due respect to the feelings of many who believe truly, honestly, that, that they're scriptural reasons to be looking up any minute to be raptured out of here. Uh, I say this as respectfully as I can to their point of view. I believe that we are obviously not being prepared to fly out of here. We are being prepared to finally fulfill the calling of being salt and light and occupying until he comes. And so everything is being shaken in the international, national, and private uh, circles. If you are depressed or exhausted or fearful or whatever other negative label you want to put on any of those emotions, then that's what's being shaken in you. And to the degree it's shaken, to that degree it needs to be shaken. How else will you know that it needs to be healed 
if it's not shaken. But it will not be healed if all you do is shake under the power of it. So you have to unplug, get away from everybody, including the news media and the whatever else you're listening to, even if it's prophetic voices. Uh, get away from everybody and everything and put yourself before the Lord and listen for his voice because he will be the stability of your times. Not what somebody is telling you he says, even if they're accurate. God will do nothing except he reveal his secrets to his servants, the prophets, Amos tells us. And that's good and that's important, but that's not the same thing as you listening to his voice for you about your insecurities and fears and anxieties and anger and whatever else might be overwhelming you right now. A lot of people are just suffering some, some battle fatigue. And it's, it's an atmosphere. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily, I, I, I've had conversations with people who say, you know, I'm a little bit ashamed of myself. Nothing is wrong. Our, our family is safe relatively. Our needs are met. We're, we're eating and we're sleeping and we're going about our daily business. But yet there is some kind of feeling of anxiety and insecurity and loss. Uh, and they tried to describe it and they run out of words real quickly. But I'll tell you what it, what I think it is, partially anyway. It is the awareness that so much of what we have been accustomed to in American culture has now been abruptly brought to an end and so much of it can possibly be at its complete end. Some things are not going to return as they were before. Maybe a lot of things. And I'm I'm not sad about that. Uh, because I, I was not placing my joy on any of those things. I, I, I do admit that I would like to be able to go out to a, a favorite restaurant with my family and not be surrounded by paranoid people who are terrified that uh, if they breathe air, they're going to die, uh, thanks to the counterfeit messages of a false news media. But I'm amazed at how many Christians are sub- subject to that. And that's that's a bad thing, but it's a good thing if it's making us aware of how unbelieving and fearful we are. And as it says in Jeremiah chapter 12, what God said to Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was complaining about how bad things were, God said, well, Jeremiah, if the foot soldiers tire you, what will you do when the horsemen come? And if... Uh, if, if you can't wade through the waters around your ankles, what will you do in the swelling of the Jordan? So I want to ask us today to examine whether we are really taking seriously those elements in our lives that are weak, insecure, unstable, unbelieving, areas where we have been tolerating secret personal sin. Maybe you've had your own little private part of your world that you've kept from the past. You've kept some idols of Egypt in your 
in your tent and you pull them out to comfort yourself now and then. Uh, I don't mean that to sound judgmental. I know about that because I've been guilty of it in the past. Uh, everything is naked and open before his eyes, but that's not the same thing as you bringing it to him and saying to him, I know I've been hiding this from you, and I really want you to please have mercy on me and enter into this with me and help me wrestle it to the ground, help me bring it to the cross. Um, this is not a bad thing. It's painful for uh, some some people, depending on how dependent you've allowed yourself to become on false comforts. But uh, even if it's painful to deal with them and let them go, uh, it's a great deliverance and a great freedom that comes once you've, you've done that. But if you don't do that, if you don't take that seriously and pursue it, really, really pursue it with the Lord until it's, until it's done. The only other place for you to go is depression. The only other place for you to go is, uh, to suppress those feelings and those struggles. And then they pop up in different forms, either as anger or anxiety or overeating or drinking too much or lust or you, you know, you know the, the drill. You, you, you've heard all that before. So, uh, this is the time when God in his great mercy is saying, I love you too much to let you continue on the path of just coping by not coping, but by, by not facing the truth. And I want to help you really face these issues. It's not a matter of you better get right or you'll lose your soul. That's, that's not what we're talking about. That's, that's not in God's heart for you. Uh, and it's not in your heart. That's not, you know, that kind of old legalistic, fear-motivated, uh, you know, I mean, fear is not a bad motivator. If there's no other thing motivating you but fear, fear, I guess, is better than nothing. You know, uh, if your house is on fire and you're not paying attention and somebody comes to your door screaming and beating on the door and terrifies you enough to get you motivated to get out of the house, then fear was a good thing. But how would you like to live in that fear for the rest of your life? The only way you can protect yourself is to be jolted into that kind of fear. Obviously, that's not what we're called to. God has called us to peace, not to fall to pieces. And peace, shalom, doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of wholeness, <clears throat> the presence of how God intended it all to be. Now, now, I want to tell you a Thanksgiving story. You know, I don't do Thanksgiving messages as a special holiday message because, I mean, for heaven's sakes, we live in Thanksgiving all the time. Thanksgiving is part of our breathing. But today, I just want to tell you a story, and I hope it'll help illustrate if you, if you, 
if you'll help, forgive me for indulging too much about, about my own story, I, I just want to tell you something that happened. It happened to be during a Thanksgiving time of, of the year. But my purpose of, uh, for telling the story is to try to uncover for us how these things, these hidden things that I was just trying to describe, uh, are brought into the light. We think it's the, sometimes we think it's the devil doing it, and sometimes it might be, have some devilish aspects. But I think for the most part, it's just human interaction. And God in his grace and love and care and wisdom watches over these interactions in order to bring us to the place where we will then willingly open up to him about things that we've been just tolerating or putting up with or even worse, denying and disguising and calling by a more acceptable name. And in order to tell this story, uh, I'll take you back to something that happened in the mid-1970s. In in the mid-1970s, because of the love and support of Rick and Susan Mull, who were very close friends, uh, they were in the military, and they were stationed in Europe, and they opened the door for me to be able to come to Europe and to do some work with uh, NATO, the the NATO bases there. Uh, please don't misunderstand me. I was not working with NATO. I was I was at the NATO uh, bases, and then later at Shape headquarters in Belgium, we were able to minister to the American troops as well as uh, a number of people from the regions that we were in. And so one night uh, in the mid-1970s, in the middle of a terrible rainstorm, I was to speak at a meeting that was badly attended because the weather was so bad. I mean, I think we had maybe 12 people. Really good for a young preacher's ego. And so I still did my best but wasn't expecting much. But in the midst of all of that, a young American uh, lady, a soldier, gave her heart to Jesus. And years later, uh, I was interacting with Rick and Susan, and they communicated to me about her and her progress. They'd continued to stay in touch with her and minister to her. In some ways, they discipled her. And uh, I was glad to hear about that and glad to hear from them. And we went on about our business. Well, let me jump ahead now or or jump a few years uh, forward to 1987. I had moved to Texas and was pastoring in Texas and had uh, a group of young men that I had discipled and was a spiritual father to them. They were like our own kids came to still be part of our family, practically. And it's before, long before Mary and I married uh, that this story happened. Uh, they were graduating. 
They were about to go in all the different directions for the fulfillment of their adult lives. We wanted to do something special. I wanted to do something special. And so we planned a trip to Washington, D.C., kind of as a last hurrah before we all went in separate directions. And uh, in the midst of all that, it was communicated to this American soldier lady who had come to the Lord in Europe in the mid-1970s, she learned from Rick and Susan that I was coming to Washington and that I had uh, these young young guys with me. So we get to Washington, and I get a phone call. And there she is. We catch up, talk about all the good things that had happened over the years, and reminisce to bed. And then she said something really strange to me. She said, you know, a lot more happened in that meeting uh, that night when so many uh, people didn't come and it was just a handful of people and I met the Lord. She said, not only did I meet the Lord, but I uh, went on in my career and uh, through a long series of circumstances, I've become the personal driver and uh, kind of the personal uh, assistant to President Reagan. She said, how would you all like to be at the White House tomorrow? Would you be able to get the boys up and get them cleaned up and ready to come to the White House? They may not meet the president, but they will just be a few feet from him when his, when his helicopter lands and they'll be, they'll be in the middle of it all. Well, of course, we did. Uh, I've never seen those guys look so uh, spick and span. (laughs) And so uh, I noticed, though, a strange thing as we were approaching the White House. They were normal young guys in their late teens, early 20s. And, uh, you know, there's the the normal conflict that arises, little ego conflicts that arise between guys that age. But there seemed to be a, a, a little a little more of that this particular day. I didn't pay much attention to it, but we went on. Everything went as planned. Uh, the president's helicopter landed. He walked in the room. We were in that same room with uh, about 100 other people, but uh, the guys were only a few feet from the president. And... Uh, we enjoyed the atmosphere of the moment, went on a short tour of the White House, went on about our business, and went back to the hotel. Uh, being on a limited income, we were at a hotel that was not in one of the better parts of town. And in Washington, you don't have to go too far to, to be in a bad part of town. Uh, but uh, I noticed on the way back to the hotel that little nitpicking attitude between them had gotten worse. Almost almost to the point that I I felt like a a parent having to correct younger children about, you know, cut it out. Quit slapping each other. Quit biting at each other. Well, 
we get to the hotel. I am supposed to meet uh, at the Pentagon with a, a general who, by his invitation, had uh, asked me to come up and help him develop a program for discipling soldiers. And uh, so I was supposed to meet him for that. That was the main purpose I was in Washington. And we just turned it into a kind of a holiday excursion along with that assignment that I was on. And uh, got to go to the White House uh, in the midst of, of that kind of as an extra. But the guys were restless. They, they wanted to get out and go do something. So I said, well, fine, you know, go on. I'll see you later. But nine o'clock came. Here we are in a bad part of, of the city. Getting It's, it's already dark because it's November. Ten o'clock came. Not a sign of them. Uh, I had work to do. I stayed as busy as I could keep myself to keep my mind occupied. But when 11 o'clock came, I, the anxiety began to grow really uh, strongly. And when midnight came, I was beginning to panic. The panic, and any parent knows this, you reach a point where the panic goes from from dread to exhaustion to keeping yourself busy to, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've cleaned everything, uh, fixed everything, and organized the garage three times over, waiting and worrying about whether something has happened because it's so late and they're not in yet. But uh, finally at 2 o'clock, because I had to be at the Pentagon at 7, I laid down and tried to go to sleep and had just dozed off when I hear them coming through the door. And nothing makes more noise than a bunch of guys trying to be quiet because they don't want a confrontation. And so I was relieved that they were safe, relieved that they were back, relieved in all the ways that you can imagine of being relieved. But I was also very angry. And they went on to sleep. I got up on time, got to the Pentagon, had my meeting, came back to the hotel by 10. They were still asleep. Uh, 11 o'clock, they were still asleep. 12 o'clock, they just began to arouse from sleep because they were pretty hungover. When I realized the rage that was rising in me was out of control. I was so angry uh, that I didn't say a word. Uh, But I was so out of control over my own anger, energized by hurt that I'll explain more in a minute, that in my silence they misinterpreted it it as uh, all is well. And we got dressed to go about our business for the afternoon of sightseeing and going to different parts of the area, which we were right near Arlington Cemetery. I remember thinking things like how I would like to kill them all and and hide their bodies in Arlington Cemetery, but then realized that I didn't want to desecrate Arlington with their their carcasses. So uh, that was the mindset I was in, and the mindset they were in was, well, we we got past his uh, disapproval, and we're all okay now. So I held, I held it 
under control like a beach ball under water, pushing a beach ball down under the water. You know, you push a beach ball down, 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 and finally it reaches a point where the pressure makes it come up with great force. So the further down you push it, the stronger it comes up. Well, I pushed my anger down all morning, actually all night and most of the morning. But finally, when we got just about to the gate of Arlington, I couldn't hold down my anger anymore. Every time I would think about them thinking that it was all okay and they had come in drunk and uh, it didn't even seem to matter to them, I just exploded. Uh, We retreated back to the hotel. We walked back in the room where I began to yell and scream and exhibit the, the depth of my anger at their lack of uh, maturity. Never, never mind my obvious lack of maturity. Uh, their lack of maturity, their lack of godliness, so forth. This went on for an hour. Finally, it quieted down enough for me to have a conversation with each one of them individually. And once it was just me and them one-on-one, we were able to talk more heart-to-heart. But the bottom line was, I was absolutely, completely convinced of my 100% righteous position against their 100% wrong position. And the only response from them that I would have accepted or tolerated was a complete uh, apology. First to me, and maybe then to the Lord. You know, you got to keep priorities in, in proper order. Well, the atmosphere had been so damaged by my rage far more by my rage than by their post-adolescent misdemeanor that I told them I was going to go for a walk and I walked out the door mainly for the purpose of talking to somebody else that I might try to gain some equilibrium back over all of this. I called the general and explained to him what had happened and how disappointed I was and of course, I covered it up with all the right language. I, he, he could tell that I was pretty enraged. And then he said something uh, in a quiet, stable, mature, wise voice that hit me like a thunderbolt. He said, well, Clay, this is all your fault. <laughs> Then he went on to explain something that I, in my mid-thirties, was not evidently old enough to have learned yet. He said, you know, in the military, we never, ever allow young recruits to be in an atmosphere of high-power authority and uh, military or political uh impressiveness. He said, we don't, we would never let a corporal 
be in the presence of the President of the United States. You know why? They can't handle the flow of energy. And then he began to ask me questions. He said, did, did, did you notice an increase in their demeanor in uh, uh, anger or just cockiness or male ego? And I said, well, come to think of it, yeah. He said, he said that was because you brought them to the seat of power in the world. They, in the young age of 19, 20, 21 years old, were exposed to the very pinnacle of earthly power and they didn't have the emotional maturity to bear up under the presence of that power. He said, you really should be thankful they didn't end up in jail or something worse. He said, all they did was go out and get drunk. And so while he was saying these things, a part of me was hearing it, and a part of me was not hearing it, rejecting it. I thanked him for his time and hung up the phone and went for a walk around Arlington. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. He began to say to me, this is all because you've never forgiven your father. And right there in Arlington, thankfully with nobody around, I began to weep. And deep from inside of me came this raging cry that went something like this. Every holiday of my life was ruined by alcohol. I thought I could have one time with these guys away from all, all of the past that we would be able to celebrate the goodness of everything that, that you're, you're giving us and everything in our lives and that you would be at the center of it and, and it's just like it was when I was a boy. Right in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, there was some vulgar outburst brought on by alcohol that ruined everything. And the level of my anger was being projected at the boys, but it was coming from when I was a boy. And it was causing me to be absolutely unfair, unreasonable, undiscerning, and to be honest, unforgiving, and certainly unhelpful to say the least. I mean, you talk about an understatement of it being unhelpful. It was not, it was not redemptive at all. And when I saw it, it took me about two hours to really see things for what they were. And I made my way back to the hotel and I tried to patch up with each one of them individually. There were four of them. I, I tried to patch up with each one of them individually what I had done. Now, I wasn't ready yet to admit what I had done was far more immature and far more damaging than what they had done. 
but I was at least able to put a Band-Aid on a, a bullet hole. And we were able to go out and go to the Smithsonian and go to different places. And as young people are usually able to do, they were pretty much able to get over the immediate pressures of the negative moment. Then we got back to the hotel. By this time, it was the day before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Day was the next day. We were going to go to some crummy restaurant and try to have some semblance of a Thanksgiving meal meal together and then head back home uh, the, the, the next morning. About that time, the, the phone rang. And who was it but the general? He said, my wife and I were just talking about the fact that tomorrow's being Thanksgiving and you've had kind of a rough time with the boys. We just wondered if y'all might consider coming over and having Thanksgiving dinner with us. Well, of course we would be thrilled to do that, and we did. We made our way to the general's home, again, right outside the gates of Arlington Cemetery. And we were exposed for the next four hours to the hospitality and kindness and Christian atmosphere of a godly, mature military leader and his wife as they sought to encourage us and restore some sense of unity and hope to our shattered holiday away together. But I'm telling you all this to to tell you something else. The Thanksgiving that was ruined by my memories of ruined Thanksgivings was one of the worst Thanksgiving memories of my life because it was exacerbated by my unforgiving memories toward my father and toward other members of my family who I considered the cause of all of our sorrow as a family. And so lesser bad memories, which were now ghosts of memories, they were no longer memories that should have had power to form or deform the present moment. But they had completely destroyed, almost completely destroyed, our time in Washington together. What was salvaged was salvaged because of the kindness and hospitality uh, and wisdom of uh, a mature Christian couple. The story doesn't end there. We got home and went through the process of the coming holiday season. And come January 2nd, everybody would be going their own separate ways. And the coldness and the loss of emotional bonding was more and more obvious uh, as we made our way back to Texas. And I returned to Texas with the boys, realizing that 
I had done much more damage than just ruining Thanksgiving in Washington. It would take several years, actually, for them to mature and for me to mature. And part of the maturation process that I had to go through in order to see healing occur was I had to be willing to wait. I had to be willing not to try to fix everything so I could feel better. Because trying to make myself feel better at their expense would have only increased their trouble, their hurt, their anger, their frustration, and their self-hatred, and their shame. Because I had poured out a great deal of shameful rebuke upon them expecting them to maintain a a level of decorum that they simply were not able to maintain. And I wasn't mature enough to understand it, and I wasn't mature enough to forgive it, and I wasn't mature enough to be patient with it and let them be what they were until they could be more than that. And so years went by before we were ever able to sit down like mature people and revisit those memories and I was able to say what I wished I could have said that that very week. I was wrong. I was wrong in the way I approached it all. I was wrong in my anger. I was wrong in my shaming of you. I was wrong in my preoccupation with alcohol being the source of the problem as if alcohol is, is ever the problem of itself. It's never an alcohol problem or a a drug problem or a gun problem. It's a human heart problem. Uh, Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Uh, Alcohol doesn't ruin families. People drink alcohol that ruins families. That's obvious. We all know that. But I had developed a a strong religious self-righteousness in response to my father's drinking, and in response then to anybody's drinking. And though I was not as uh, legalistic openly as a a young 30-year-old as I had been as a self-important pharisaical teenager, there was still enough of that in me to poison everything around me. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Beware, lest a root of bitterness take hold of you, and therefore, rising up in you, poison everyone around you. James chapter uh, 3 says, The wisdom that is uh, not of, of heaven is earthly, soulish, and demonic. Oh, I would have, I would have absolutely fought you if you had told me I was the one that was wrong. I'm glad the general was on the phone with me and was able to say just casually and almost uh, with no emotion, just to the point. Uh, he pointed out I was the one that was wrong. And when he said it, the way he said it, the Holy Spirit was able to take it and put it right in the core of my heart.
so that it took root. A word spoken at the right time in the right way brings forth uh, the right fruit. Why am I saying all that? Why am I telling that? Well, because we're approaching a holiday season. And every holiday season, even though I don't do holiday messages very well, every holiday season I find myself having to to deal with people who who dread they dread thanksgiving they dread christmas and why do they dread it because of all the dreadful memories of all the previous holidays that were disappointments that were d- d- destructive or that were uh, well, i don't know which word to use because some people's some people's are just destructive in the fact that nobody gets along. Some people's are destructive because there's open warfare and violence. Some people's are destructive because there's just cold mistreatment of one another while everybody has a smiley face and puts on a religious facade that everybody knows is a, a lie and they all walk around trying to avoid the elephant in the room. But how is it that we call the holy days, the holidays, uh, we, we call them holidays, and yet we have such unholy references and emotions and interactions related to them. It's because of unforgiveness. It's because of high, wrong expectations. It's not that we're not to have expectations of good but we have those expectations from from the lord not from people uh, i'm not saying blessed is he who is never looking forward to anything because he shall not be disappointed i'm not saying that i'm saying that when i when i learned to forgive my father which i i still had to do i was preaching I was pastoring, but I had not yet forgiven my father. I had gone through the motions. I'd said the right shallow prayers, but I still could feel the trembling rage in my body at certain stimuli that would be brought before me during the holidays. And when these boys did what they did, the Lord used it. He did not author it, but he certainly used it to bring up in me all my bitterness and rage and unforgiveness, uh, unfortunately, though it hit them. And thankfully, if they were to hear me tell this, they would laugh at it. They would say, thank God we're all past that now. And I'm able to say I'm past it now. But it's still painful to talk about because uh, in the name of righteousness, this is my main point, in the, in the name of standing for righteousness, I allowed an unrighteous anger to rule me and hurt people I care about. Now, that was 1987. Let's bring it up to date to now and to the face that uh, or what we're facing now in this political season that we're in
When I refer to a political season, let me make one thing clear. Unlike previous presidential election seasons, it's a pendulum swinging first from the left to the right, then back from the right to the left. We elect a Democrat or we elect a Republican back and forth, back and forth, or we elect a Democrat, but we elect a Republican House, and or, or vice versa. And actually, difficult as that may be for us to admit, that's the way the founders designed it. They intended us to be a two-party system. They intended us to have conflict, because as iron sharpens iron, so one Position sharpens another. And if there's no uh, resistance, an airplane can't lift off the, the ground. If there's no resistance, muscles can't grow. There has to be resistance in ideas for ideas to be uh, purged of, of uh, unhelpful mixture. Uh, but when you have people like I was in that hotel room that day who thought I was 100% right and the boys were 100% wrong and there's absolutely nothing you can do to bring peace except to lay down your arms and ask my forgiveness and kiss my ring, then we end up with a long-standing bitterness and unforgiveness that took a long time to heal. And we all emerged wiser from it, if damaged by it. And that's true of our previous political conflicts up until the last couple of decades. But in the last few decades, we have moved into another realm where we are no longer a pendulum swinging from Republican to Democrat back to Republican the Democratic Party has lost its identity as being a party of any sense of American reasonableness. It's no longer the party of John Kennedy or Hubert Humphrey or Robert Kennedy. It's now the party of Mao Zedong and Che Guevara and Karl Marx. And so we are in a realm now of not doing politics as usual in America, but we are fighting for the very existence of a democratic republic. The Constitution is at stake. And by the time you hear this, uh, we will be engaged more than likely in uh, a heightened conflict, even though election day will be finished uh, based on current information, there may be all kinds of shenanigans that are able to be uh, pulled out of the hat by the Democrats to uh, win the election. We'll see. Uh, that's all in the Lord's hands. But to say it's in the Lord's hands can be misunderstood. God has put the ruling authority in the hands of his people. So everything is ultimately in God's hands, but he's put it in our hands. So since it's been delegated to us to stand in the gap, because I've, I've, I've said this several times, 
the country will go whichever way the church goes if the church speaks the truth and stands for the truth and intercedes and repents and makes sure that we are keeping our hearts clean before the Lord. Then power and authority will move through the church to move the nation toward the the things of the kingdom. If we are uh, foolish or passive or inactive, or if we are bitter and wrangling and allowing ourselves to be pulled into the realm of the horizontal, we will lose our power to function in the vertical, which will then cost us our ability to influence the horizontal. You understand that? So uh, I'm, I'm probably preaching to myself as much as to anybody when I say the great danger is that we will allow our, our own energy to be dissipated in anger and frustration and uh, fleshly desire to work righteousness by the working of our own anger and wrath. And so we've got to be aware of that. Uh, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Now you will not see me until you will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, for your house has been left to you desolate. In that one statement, we understand that the destruction of Jerusalem was not an absolute predetermined guarantee. In 70 AD, when the Romans came in to finally utterly destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple so that there was not one stone left on top of another that would not be torn down, that was not predetermined. That was not... uh, prophesied and it didn't have to happen but the reason jesus is saying they they were utterly destroyed eventually was because they did not hear him if they had heard him they would not have hated the romans they would not have hated the samaritans they would not have hated the herodians there would have been a release of the grace of God through them that could have brought about a great transformation and could have changed the whole course of history. Uh, we are not predetermined to be destroyed as a nation. I hear Christians say some of the most ridiculous things, like the, the United States is not in Bible prophecy. Well, of course, neither is Tierra del Fuego. Neither is uh, every other nation uh, that's been birthed in the last two, three hundred years, for heaven's sakes. That's not the criteria by which we determine the the outcome of or the destiny of nations. All nations are going to be gathered before Jesus, Matthew 25 says, and some nations will be sheep nations, and some nations will be goat nations, 
And we right now are in an election time in which we are choosing whether we will be sheep nation or a goat nation. Um, And since the Democratic Party has determined to identify itself with Baphomet, the goat demon god of Satanism, then uh, you can pretty well determine from that that voting Democrat means voting for goats. I don't know. I don't know how that can be argued against. And so, uh, what it's what's our what we've got to do is make sure that we don't fall into the trap that that Jerusalem embraced um, when Jesus warned over and over and over, if you take up the sword, you'll perish by the sword. Now, I'm not a pacifist. Don't misunderstand me. And I I don't have time now to explain how pacifism is not the same thing as refusing to take up the sword. Uh, I believe that a man should protect his family. I believe that a, a, a family should be able to protect themselves against hoodlum uh, attacks uh, and uh, and yet at the same time I believe we, we should listen to the Holy Spirit and obey him in regard to how we are to respond to some of the evils that we see perpetrating more and more around the country. I wonder would I say that so bluntly if I lived in Portland or Seattle uh, or some of the other cities that have been given over to demonic evil by uh, feckless, gutless, mindless leaders who are not obeying their God-given call to protect and defend uh, the the citizenry of their city, uh, according to Romans 13. But anyway, I'm talking more about the heart. What's your heart like? Are you bitter and angry? at your political enemies. I get angry at my political opponents and my political enemies, but I do not wish evil on them. I pray for them to be overthrown for their own sake, that they might repent, that they might be saved from their own evil, that God might be able to have mercy on them. And I sincerely pray that. I sincerely pray that for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and all the others I could name. I sincerely pray that for people who are manifestly uh, bloodthirsty in the killing of babies. Uh, I, I pray that they will repent. I pray that their platforms will be destroyed, that they will lose their positions of power for their own sake so they, they might come to the end of themselves and turn and repent. Manasseh did, and he was the biggest baby killer in the history of Israel. Bloodthirsty, evil, the wickedest king in the history of Israel. And yet when he repented, God had mercy on him. God will have mercy on any person who turns and repents. So I'm I'm praying, I'll tell you, I might have mentioned this already, but I'll mention it again. I'm praying that God will so do something to bring corrective judgment on America that it will shake all of us to the core of our being and we will seriously turn to the Lord and seriously stand for him and seriously proclaim the gospel instead of being meek and mild and hiding in a false message of 
uh, getting along with everybody. Rather than get along with everybody, we will love people so much that we will want to speak the truth to them without compromise. Not in self-righteousness, but in love and fear of the Lord. So, um, Jesus was dealing, when you read the New Testament, you're, you're, you're dealing with a, a boiling pot of political conflict. Um, the hatred, we, we don't understand how deeply uh, the Jews hated the Romans, but also the Samaritans, and also the Herodians, and also the, uh, the factions within Judaism that hated one another. Uh, for instance, uh, Jewish historians tell us that right before the destruction of Jerusalem, the conflict was so deeply embedded between various factions of Phariseeism and different factions of, of Judaism that they were actually destroying one another's stockpiles of food. You talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. But they were so overwhelmed with political anger that they were willing to destroy the food of their enemies, even if it meant that they were inside the same city that was facing the same destruction, and they were destroying their own food when they were destroying their opponent's food. I mean, it's insanity. Uh, some of you may know that uh, you think this, this, can't, this can't happen in America. Well, 95%, 95% of the people of Rwanda claimed to be Christian. So it was professed Christians who in, uh, in 19, what, 1995 uh, took machetes and chopped each other's arms and legs and heads off. Uh, in the in the horrible bloodbath of Rwanda, Christian people did that to each other. So check your own heart. May God have mercy on us. May may you, Father, please examine us to see if there's any wicked way in us. Purge out of us every impure, unclean thought of of bitterness or revenge. Uh, let us turn our anger into prayer so that you can turn our prayer into righteous intervention for good. We pray that, Father, for our children, our children's children, for our families, for our neighbors, and for our political enemies. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.